Hi everybody, uh, if you're with me here today, uh, it's to learn a little bit about the acceptance or denial of workers' compensation claims uh, in New Jersey. I'm gonna talk today uh, about some less common reasons for denying or defending these cases. I'm gonna talk about initial considerations, what we should be thinking about when a new matter is referred to us uh, as either a risk professional or as defense counsel. And this is totally live. I am uh, happy to answer any questions you have. Please type your questions into the panel and I will um, answer them as we go through. So today we're going to talk about denials in general. Sort of what are the initial considerations that we should have when we are looking at a new case? Uh, what kind of information to provide to defense counsel so the defense counsel can help you? Uh, we're going to talk about cases where the accident didn't take place and we need to put together a fact defense. We're going to talk about personal uh, uh, defenses, idiopathics. I'm going to talk a little bit very briefly about intoxication uh, and of course we're going to talk about the various notice or jurisdictional defenses available in cases. Uh, there is a handout available today uh, in the presentation so you can download that right now from your panel uh, and again uh, this is totally live. Please ask questions because at the end I will try to answer as many questions as I can time permitting. I try to keep these webinars to 30 minutes or less so I'll answer as many as I can at that time. I will not say your full name, I'll just say your first name and I'll repeat your question for the group and then hopefully uh, be able to provide a meaningful answer that will be useful for everyone. Okay, uh, so let's jump in. First, let's talk a little bit about medical provider applications in New Jersey. It's turning out that uh, approximately one in five new cases in the workers' compensation system in New Jersey is a medical provider application. I just want to remind everyone that in general, medical provider applications, once the claim has been filed, should be met typically with a denial. Uh, at that moment, you want to put your adversary to their proofs, make them uh, prove that they would be allegedly entitled to more money under New Jersey's usual and customary scheme. Uh, we do not typically accept these claims without disputing them and putting the claimant to their proofs. Uh, and that means that discovery demand should be issued and these cases should be re reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis as to whether the best strategy is to immediately settle them by making a small offer, uh, trying to meet the demand because there is some sort of circumstance which would indicate uh, that the case is, uh, has some value to it. Of course, reviewing any uh, provider contracts or other repricing information that we would have. And then of course, uh, demanding discovery and saying, look, if you're saying medical provider that you're due all of these additional funds uh, under the New Jersey's usual and customary scheme, uh, we want to be able to challenge that, so show me other people who have paid them. And don't cherry pick them. I want to see all payers. Uh, so putting these uh, physicians uh, or the medical providers to the test is very important. All right. Uh, our, our position in general on a medical provider application is that it should be disputed, um, most importantly to position you for a uh, settlement to try to resolve that matter. Uh, please note that there are separate statute of limitations defenses uh, that should be raised and jurisdictional defenses. Most saliently, and this is very new information, in fact, it just took effect in April, New York State in their medical fee guidelines, general guideline number 16, now says that where a New York State workers' compensation claimant gets treatment in New Jersey or any other state, the medical fee reimbursement is at the New York medical fee schedule adjusted for the location of the claimant, meaning their residence. So that means that the Region 1, Region 2 modifiers to the New York State medical fee schedule would apply, 
but you're not paying this person at the, or sorry, the medical provider at the usual and customary rate, the fee schedule applies. They have now uh, included that in the guideline itself uh, and adopted that. So and that occurred in April of 2019, and that's very important for New Jersey uh, medical provider applications involving New York workers' compensation claimants, where the only connection to the state of New Jersey uh, is that the treatment took place in the state, and now the doctor is trying to obtain usual and customary reimbursement. In other words, trying not to get paid according to the New York fee schedule. Those cases should be vigorously defended based on jurisdiction. The New York Workers' Compensation Board retains jurisdiction in those cases. There's case law on that. And now they have published a guideline saying exactly how those out-of-state physicians providing treatment to a New York workers' compensation claim, it should be reimbursed. We think that's going to be very important for our New York uh, our clients and our New Jersey clients who are defending these medical provider applications where they have clearly coached the patients to cross the river, get treatment in New Jersey, just so they could try to shoehorn in New Jersey's usual and customary rate. All right, uh, let's talk about the defense of lack of notice. Uh, the petitioner in a New Jersey workers' compensation case has to provide notice to the employer. It's built into our statute. I remind you that that notice is 30 days. And I also caution people that notice uh, as a defense should be raised as soon as you can because it's going to be a fact-based defense. Es essentially, the petitioner is going to be saying, oh, I told this person and that person I got injured, and we're going to need to quickly and de uh, determine whether that defense is going to apply. Now, uh, for practical purposes, we will often raise notice as a defense in a workers' compensation claim in New Jersey and then try to figure out uh, later if we can actually establish that defense as valid or not, meaning it will often require additional investigation. Uh, typically, I remind employers uh, that constructive notice is notice. So if the person left in an ambulance, was airlifted off of your job site or sought treatment at on-site medical, that's going to be deemed constructive notice. Uh, however, notice is not mean, hey, I just told anybody at the work site. So uh, the claimant who's been, let's say, separated for some reason, they haven't worked with us, and all of a sudden they bring a new claim against us a year after we've last seen this person at our work site, and then says, oh yeah, right before I was terminated or quit, I told so-and-so I got injured at work. Well, that so-and-so should be a supervisor or manager, not just a co-employee, and so we should hold them to that standard. So again, notice is something that we should an an analyze right at the time the case first comes in, and we should determine if we can raise that as a defense. New, uh, New Jersey has three different statute of limitations that apply to workers' compensation cases. So the first one is simple. In the accidental injury case, the typical, I slipped, fell, broke my leg, there is a two-year statute of limitations. So in the accidental traumatic injury context, again, this is a one specific incident leading to a very uh, clear and objective injury, a two-year statute of limitations applies. And that two-year statute of limitations to apply for workers' compensation benefits, it begins to run, not from the date of loss, uh, but from the last time the employer rendered aid or treatment for that uh, condition. So let's think about that uh, in the context of the employee, for example, and particularly in the reopener context. Uh, the statute of limitations may be coming up to expire, and then they go and seek uh, medical treatment for the first time. Be very thoughtful about the statute of limitations beginning to run. The second um, second of limitations is for occupational exposure claims, and this would be repetitive use injuries, occupational injuries, respiratory injuries, exposure injuries, anything where the injurious exposure uh, maybe took time or could be latent for a while before the actual injury manifests itself. So a great example is the asbestos worker 
who the, no asbestosis or respiratory condition or injury really manifests for 20 years after they've left that specific employment. In that context, the two-year statute of limitations starts to run from the employee knew or should have known that their condition was related to a workplace exposure. What that means in practical purposes is that when one of these occupational exposure claims is brought in the state of New Jersey, by default, the respondent should deny the claim. And that will give the respondent the opportunity to go investigate all of the interim medical between perhaps the last exposure, the last employment, and when the claim was first brought in workers' compensation court. And the reason that should be done is so that we can determine, did they ever tell any one of their doctors in all of this interim period that they had been exposed to an injurious substance at work and perhaps had or knew, had knowledge that they had a latent condition or a condition? Uh, because that will start the statute of limitations running from way back then. So there are cases where employees bring a respiratory defect claim but then after investigation, it's determined that they were complaining about the respiratory defect and telling their doctors that they believed it was related to something at work 10 years before they ever brought the workers' compensation claim. That means they are out of time and out of luck in their workers' compensation matter. So that's an instance where the initial denial will give you time to perform that investigation by way of interrogatory, medical releases, and of course, subpoenas to determine if this petitioner ever told anyone that they believe this alleged condition could have been related long long into the past. So that's how that defense would be fleshed out. Um, the third statute of limitations uh, is for medical provider applications, which have a six-year statute of limitations uh, from the time treatment is rendered. And that is uh, the result of a recent decision uh, called uh, the Chevy Maloof decision, which just came out of New Jersey Appellate Division, extending the time for that. So those are uh, uh, a class of claims, medical provider applications, which have a six-year statute of limitations now. Um, okay, last one. Uh, next, how about the defense of the accident never happened? This is a valid defense. Uh, the way this defense is fleshed out is typically through investigation and discovery, right? Uh, this is a fact defense. We're essentially saying that no, either the way you describe the loss is impossible, we didn't have that machine, or you weren't working that day, or the, uh, you know, the dangerous instrumentality wasn't actually on the work site at the time you alleged it was, et cetera. So we're going to dispute the very basis of the alleged workers' compensation claim. Uh, these kinds of losses are going to require a fact defense. And when you're considering denying a case in New Jersey for one of these, feel free to reach out to counsel and just say, hey, here's the facts as I know them. To deny a case in New Jersey for lack of accident or really any grounds before a claim petition is filed, in other words, before the formal pleading is filed in workers' compensation court, you're just sending a letter to the petitioner. And that letter just says, uh, dear petitioner, we've investigated uh, the claim that you've made. We've determined it's not compensable. Very truly yours, risk professional, or very truly yours, employer. That's how those cases are disputed. Uh, the filing of specific uh, state documents or forms. Yes, New Jersey does um, have the electronic filing of the FROI form, but in practice, the way cases are denied is very simply through a letter to the um, employer, employee. When you have a case that has red flags in it or 
would bear additional investigation. Uh, that's the opportunity to sort of marshal together as much information as we can. And we're going to want stuff about the claimant, including their personnel file, any incident report which was or was not made, any internal surveillance. This is a great time to engage loss control at our retail location and say, hey, uh, let's make sure that we have all of the videotapes of the in-store surveillance for all the days where this petitioner was working. We're going to want to engage other sources, and we're going to want to sequester as much of this information as we can. Remember, when the petitioner comes forward and claims to have a loss, and it's disputed, we're going to say, hey, the, the accident never occurred. By the time that case gets before a workers' compensation judge, years can pass. So we're going to want to lock down very early witness statements, who would be the best person to testify, and raise these defenses as early as you can so that you're not trying to litigate these issues years into the case when maybe perhaps uh, managers, supervisors, co-employees uh, have moved on to new jobs or uh, been assigned to a different location, or surveillance tapes have been erased because we erase them every 60 days or something, or we can't get any of these documents pulled back together. That's not the time to try to defend those cases. Um, all right, just a reminder, this is live. I am waiting for questions to start popping up so that I can start answering them at the end. Uh, please, if you have a question for me about grounds for denying a case, I'm also happy to talk about any specific denials that you're contemplating. Uh, now would be the time to type them in. All right, let's talk about the personal or idiopathic uh, ground to deny a case. So what do I mean by personal or idiopathic? What I'm talking about is a condition that is purely personal maybe congenital, uh, but has literally nothing to do with the workplace, right? So we can all think of many examples of a personal condition which is not related to your workers' compensation uh, loss. Uh, a good example of that is diabetes. Uh, others' example of that could be cardiac claims. Uh, these are conditions in which the petitioner has either a predisposition or a diagnosis of a pre-existing condition. Um, now, uh, because you faint at work, because you didn't take your medication for your heart condition, doesn't make your heart condition compensable. Similarly, uh, because you fainted at work, uh, because you had went into diabetic shock, because you didn't take your diabetes medication, or you ate the wrong things, doesn't make your condition compensable just because it emerged uh, or manifested at work. Uh, only if the work worsens and materially worsens that underlying condition, would it be compensable? And many of these personal conditions, it's absolutely impossible for the work to have worsened it. Uh, I do get a lot of questions about the, quote, just walking along injury. So the just walking along injury is uh, the, I was just walking through the warehouse, Greg, and my knee went. Is it compensable? Or the, I was just walking up the stairs at work and my ankle fractured itself or turned in on itself. So there's no specific incident, there's no maybe uh, causative trauma, there's nothing specific, there was no accident, so to speak, but you did have a medical condition which emerged or became manifest at work. So generally speaking, the just walking along injury is not compensable. Just simply happening at work is not enough. However, in practice, uh, the claimants are often able to say, well, uh, I was carrying a piece of paper up the stairs, which is why I lost my balance and, and injured my knee. Or there was some slippery substance on the warehouse floor, which caused my knee to give out uh, in some way. And they will transform these just walking along injuries. Let's be very careful at the time a new case is reported to us to see if it's just walking along or if it arose simply as the result of a pre-existing purely personal condition. Those are not compensable. 
Uh, and particularly in the diabetic or the cardiac context, where you have someone who experiences, for example, angina at work, just you no know, chest pain, uh, unspecified chest pain, or they have a they faint, uh, they go into diabetic shock and faint. Those conditions are not compensable, but if they strike something in our workplace on the way down, they hit their head on their desk, they, they strike their head on the floor, uh, that sequelae, the, the contact with the actual employment premises or an incident of the employment, like the desk, the treatment for that would be compensable. And that's where it gets a little difficult because now you have someone who's maybe been uh, hospitalized for a cardiac uh, condition, and we're not paying for the cardiac condition, we're just paying for the broken nose they sustained when they struck their head on the, on the ground. And that needs to be very clearly defended right from the outset. All right, let's talk a little bit about intoxication as a defense. And everyone loves to talk about intoxication as a defense because it seems so exciting. And we've all seen cases where the claimant or petitioner was intoxicated at work, and maybe the intoxication contributed to the actual injury. Uh, a good example of that is over-the-road truck drivers or delivery people driving our vehicles, and they're drunk, and they get in an accident. Well, generally speaking, those will still be found compensable, even though our statute at Section 7 specifically says intoxication is not or intoxication-related injuries are not compensable. And the reason for that is the burden is on the employer to essentially show that the intoxication was the sole cause of the accident really difficult to do. Um, solely caused literally means we are the only cause of the accident. So I'll give an example. Uh, a truck driver, and it's in the handout materials today, it's the Toolmac versus Highbridge Stone case. A truck driver who comes to work drunk, a very high blood alcohol content, uh, gets in the truck, drives it off our premises to begin his route, and immediately crashes the truck, causing serious injuries. Uh, blood alcohol tests show him well above the legal limit, highly intoxicated. Uh, the uh, claimant comes to court and testifies and says, yep, I was really drunk. In fact, uh, my brother-in-law and I, I believe in that story, they drank a case of beer after doing a roofing job uh, uh, for with the brother. Uh, but he said, uh, that week I had worked a lot of overtime, I had pulled a lot of shifts, so I was really tired. So I was tired from work plus I was really drunk, and that's what caused the accident. And that was found to be sufficient to overcome the presumption, and uh, because the employee could claim I was tired plus drunk, that destroys the defense that the injury was solely caused by the intoxication. I'll give another example, and this is an example, one of the rare examples, where intoxication has been found to be a complete and valid defense. And that is, I have a case involving a warehouse worker, uh, who every day uh, would leave work at some point, go out to his car, he was addicted to heroin, and shoot up heroin in his car. Uh, he wasn't punched in or punched out, he was just doing heroin in his car, and he apparently had been doing this for a long period of time. Well, one time he overdosed, and he was actually found dead in his car. We were able to argue that there was nothing compensable about that circumstance, that we had absolutely never told him to be doing illegal street drugs, uh, he wasn't instructed to do, it had nothing to do with the employment, and the employment contributed in, in no way to the uh, uh, accident, which is he overdosed and killed himself. So that's a very extreme fact example, uh, but that's the only type of circumstance where the intoxication will be found to be the sole cause of the loss, in that case, of death. All right, how about consequential injuries? I want us to be very thoughtful about this. Uh, how many cases do you have that start off as a, ouch, I hurt or I sprained my left ankle, 
and six months later, somehow you're defending a case involving psychiatric depression, the low back, the right ankle, and the left thumb, because now everything that's kind of going on is being uh, sort of related back to that original loss, right? So in those cases, our belief is that we need to uh, push the petitioner to prove the causal connection between the original injury and these alleged consequential injuries. Now, this should be within our power because we are picking and choosing physicians, and I want you to be thoughtful about this. The types of doctors who are being very sympathetic and are going to start to add in more and more body parts, we should be considering whether or not they should be part of our panels. Uh, certainly, I don't think uh, that injuries to specific body parts travel throughout the body. Now, we've all had cases where the uh, claimant, for example, has a low back injury and develops a foot drop and then has stumbles and falls and now sustains a new injury, uh, maybe a, a hand fracture, trying to catch themselves during a fall. Yeah, that is a legitimate consequential injury or accident. And yes, we would be exposed for that, but we should be thoughtful about this. Our default position should be to deny or controvert all new body parts. Uh, now, it can be difficult as well when we have a physician who's relating it but still, that should be a moment where we should red flag this case and taking a really hard look at how these additional body parts are getting added in. And certainly, we should not be doing it voluntarily where the body part can be defended. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about intentional cases. So what is an intentional injury? And these are uh, cases that are not compensable. This intentional self-harm is not compensable. Now, uh, intentional self-harm is really defined as someone who says to themselves, I'm going to on purpose hurt myself. Uh, for example, a suicide at work. It's more frequent or more common than we'd like to believe, but it happens. Uh, people do not want to do it at home, so they come to work to do it. In order to prove that the suicide is truly a suicide, we're really going to need something like a note, uh, some, something showing us clearly that the petitioner meant to harm themselves. Uh, when we find a dead body on our construction site and someone fell from scaffolding, the presumption is going to be that the injury occurred at work, arose out of it in the course of employment, and there was not an intentional self-harm. Where this gets trickier are circumstances where the petitioner is, let's for, for example, uh, being disobedient. They're avoiding uh, or not following our workplace safety rules. So I have employers contact me and they'll say, Greg, we told everybody this side of the warehouse is under construction. Nobody should go in that side of the warehouse. Well, Greg, this guy decided he was going to go have his lunch over there because it was nice and quiet, and he slipped and fell and got injured. I want to deny this case because he intentionally self-harmed. He disobeyed a workplace rule. Uh, he knew this was unsafe but did it anyway. That's not going to work. Uh, New Jersey does not have a theory of contributory negligence, and so uh, simple disobedience of a basic work rule is generally speaking not going to be enough to amount to a self-harm. Same thing with like removing a guard from a machine where the employees are removing guards from machines. Generally speaking, not going to be uh, a barrier to them claiming compensation. They'll just come into workers' comp court in general and they'll say something like, well, I took the barrier or the guard off the machine because I could work a little faster. All right, uh, in general, that's going to still found to be compensable. Again, we'd raise the defense merely to position the case maybe for Section 20, uh, but it's unlikely to be sustained ultimately. Other things, uh, for example, assaults between employees. In general, the employee instigating an assault between the two employees, uh, their injuries that they sustain will not be found compensable. The person who simply attacked at work just for being at work, 
very likely to be found compensable unless we can prove that there was some sort of personal animus between the two parties. For example, they owed each other money in a bet uh, or were dating each other's wives or something, something that would really uh, arise to a very high personal level of interaction. Two employees fighting about something specific to the employment. One employee says to the other, hey, go over there, do this, mop that up. And the other one says, I don't want to do it. They start getting into a fight about it. Very likely to be compensable. All right. New Jersey, in general, recreational and break time injuries are not compensable. Of course, we're going to have to look at the facts of the recreational activity. If we are requiring the employees to engage in recreational activity, for example, something as simple as I tell all my employees, I really want us to win the softball world title uh, this year. So I want everybody out on that softball team. Guess what? I just transformed the softball team into an incident of the employment. Other cases, even where the employees are encouraged to do something that really doesn't seem to have anything to do with the employment, uh, the Lozano versus uh, case, where the employee was encouraged to go ride on a go-kart during the workday uh, to have some fun and got injured, that was found to be compensable. So in general, a recreational injury where the employer has persuaded or mandated the recreational activity, that activity will be compensable. Uh, on break type injuries, I'm going to look at whether the person was paid or unpaid and on-premises or off-premises. Those are going to be the questions and concerns I'm going to have uh, for those. All right, we're up to live question and answer. So you haven't typed your question in, now is the time to do it. Um, okay, I've got a lot of questions in here. I'm going to try to go, i got at least three or four, so let's start. Michelle. Uh, if you have evidence, Michelle asked the, the question, if you have evidence to support that an injury didn't occur, should you file a fraud motion? Yeah, certainly, absolutely. So the basic defense is accident didn't occur. And then the second part of that is, well, is this a fraud? Are they trying to pass off a purely personal out-of-work injury as somehow a compensable work injury? Certainly that would be a fraud. So we would then look into it and determine whether or not a fraud referral should be made. So good question. Uh, James asks, can you discuss what is needed to defend a stress or psych claim? Yes, I can. I think that's in our webinar presentation in three months from now. I think that's our August pre presentation, which is defending occupationals and repetitive stress injuries. So in general, we're going to want to gather as much information as we possibly can to defend the case based on the type of case it is. Uh, in New Jersey, we have a lot of post-employment, meaning termination or separation or even retirement cases where after the person has been separated from the employment, they then bring an occupational exposure claim. Uh, those should be vigorously defended. New Jersey is not a wage law state, so there is a pecuniary benefit to the petitioner in bringing a post-separation or post-termination claim for an occupational exposure. And the common ones are respiratory ones, and less commonly we see repetitive stress claims and uh, uh, other types of claims. Uh, certainly things like hearing loss can be resolved uh, by getting uh, studies done. But in general, when you get this post-separation uh, uh, occupational exposure claim, we're really going to need to know the facts of what actually exposures occurred. So does this workplace actually contain the alleged exposure uh, or were the exposures mitigated? And particularly in the asbestos context, you know, I've had, uh, I've defended cases where we determined that the asbestos was actually mitigated before the carrier came on the risk, which means yeah, you might have asbestosis, and you might have it in this workplace, but it's before our period of exposure, meaning before our period of uh, insurance. Uh, in the self-insured context, let's find out where this person actually was within the locations. Were they actually exposed? I, I don't want to skip that 
portion of the occupational exposure case, uh, which sometimes is. We will say, well, we don't have that location anymore, or Greg, we closed down that plant 20 years ago. I'll say, well, well, stop, full stop. OSHA has records. NIOSH has records. Uh, maybe EPA has records. Let's look into all the records we can determine and figure out exactly what exposures there were. So that's step zero, which is figuring out, hey, what exposure? In the repetitive use context, by the way, the exposures are, what were the jobs? What were the ergonomics? What did this person actually do? And then the second thing is, let's look at the medical causation. Um, is there medical causation? Can I defend this case? What kind of forensic reports or medical reports do I need? Uh, how do I defend the case? Uh, were there synergistic effects? I mean, show me an asbestos case where I don't have a smoker involved. They're all smokers, it seems, and that has a, a strong synergistic effect with uh, asbestosis and pleural diseases. So we're gonna really take a look at that in the medical context next. And then the third thing, any kind of legal defenses we have. So again, a statute of limitations defense as we discussed earlier today, particularly in the occupational exposure context. They have two years from when they knew or should have known. So if they're complaining to their doctor about these occupational exposures 10 years ago, guess what? They're out of luck to bring the claim now. So those are the sort of initial uh, background things I wanna see. Good question, James. All right. Uh, Joanne. Uh, Joanne asked the question, this is a long one. Even when we have completed a full investigation to support our denial of a claim, because it was not within the course and scope of employment, the judges always seem to deem a claim compensable and will rule the decision. Can we ever reverse that by appealing it? And can we appeal a workers' comp judge decision? All right, good question. So, yeah, uh, Joanne, let me just say this to begin with. Workers' compensation courts are biased, skewed, prejudiced, to try to find everything compensable, right? Uh, the workers' compensation judges have a very difficult job, and primarily their job uh, is figuring out how much is something worth or how disabled is a person, and they're uh, more likely than not to find that the injury is ultimately compensable. Uh, why is that? Well, there's institutional bias, there's judicial bias, but the whole system is set up as social and beneficial legislation for the benefit of the injured worker. So tie goes to the runner. If it's a question of did it or did it not happen, the judges more likely than not are going to find that it did happen, which means the injury is compensable. Okay, uh, so knowing that, what's your next step? Well, I would say, uh, particularly in, a case, in the circumstance like we are always in workers' compensation court, I don't care what state you're in, it's always gonna be biased towards the injured worker. I say tie goes to the runner, but really it's, you know, the whole game is called in favor of the of the petitioner. That's okay. Uh, just make sure that we do raise our defenses. You do fight when you can fight, and then always consider protecting that record for the appeal. Oftentimes I tell my trial attorneys, I have 26 attorneys here trying workers' compensation cases, and I tell them, you know, sometimes you're not going to win at the workers' compensation judge level, the trial level, no matter if it's New York or New Jersey. You're not trying that case for the trial judge. You're trying that case for the appellate division. And, you know, state by state, the, uh, there is a variance in how uh, likely you are to succeed on appeal. But at the very basics of trying a case and putting your full case in there, at least it sets you up maybe for a lump sum dismissal settlement as opposed to a judicial order. So, yeah, I, I hear the frustration, Joanne, saying, hey, Greg, even when I do a full investigation, look into these things, you know, as carefully and, and completely as we can, more likely than not, we're going to lose anyway, so why even do it? Well, I think you're right. Let's think about the appeal. Let's also think about the settlement leverage and momentum we're creating by raising these defenses. Again, you have a good faith basis to raise a defense. Let's raise it because that at least positions us for a Section 20 lump sum dismissal, which really is very important. Uh, okay, last question I'm going to take. 
uh, is from Angela, and this question says, uh, although a claim cannot be denied uh, if safety violation is ignored, are there any discounts, reductions in benefits due to a safety violation? Okay, so that's an interesting question, Angela. In other words, I think what you're asking here is, hey, Greg, I know we can't go into court and say, hey, judge, uh, they didn't follow the safety rules, therefore this shouldn't be compensable. But does the judge really take that into account when they're coming up with their uh, uh, the, the award that they're going to give to this claimant? In general, not. In general, the judge doesn't really uh, do any sort of comparative uh, analysis to say, well, uh, the petitioner was this much at fault, and so I'm going to give them a little bit of a less of an award. Uh, no, in general, that's not something that's going to happen. Uh, they're going to uh, award the injury. Because remember, in New Jersey, we are, this is not a, a wage loss state. You're essentially just paying out money for a scheduled injury. They even treat the back like a schedule. They do not have to show wage loss or any impact on their earning ability in order to obtain these awards. So that's something to be mindful of. Again, comparative negligence, comparative or contributory negligence, not going to come into the size of the overall award in workers' compensation court. All right. Uh, great questions today. Thank you, everybody who asked me a question. If I didn't get to your question, uh, please feel free to email it to me and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. All right. I just want to remind everyone that this webinar series continues every month. Next month, we're going to be talking about the going and coming rule. I think that's on June 24th. Uh, we're going to resume our normal schedule, which is on Mondays, always the fourth Monday of the month. Today, uh, we were uh, a day delayed because of Memorial Day. I hope everyone had a great Memorial Day. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week. Bye, everybody.